Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain, and I'm joined here with our co-host. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Our guest today is Dr. Miranda Brose. She's the principal scientist at Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, one of America's large biopharma companies with a long and interesting history. They develop and manufacture medicines for a wide range of diseases, including cancer, cardiovascular disease, and autoimmune disorders, amongst others. They're most recently known for drugs like Opdivo, which was the first PD-1 inhibitor to gain uh, regulatory approval in the world. It treats a variety of cancers as well as Eliquis, uh, which prevents blood clots and strokes, just to name a couple um, of drugs that people might know. Prior to joining BMS, Miranda was scientific officer at Pioneer Immunotherapeutics, a clinical stage company developing cancer immunotherapies that target the tumor microenvironment. Miranda, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk, talk with you all. So as was mentioned, BMS is kind of a massive global company, so I'm sure that each employee views it from a different vantage point. Um, You know, the company headquarters is New York City, but you're coming up to us from California, which already tells you something there. Uh, So could you just briefly introduce us to the side of BMS that you know and what you currently work on? Absolutely. Yeah, so BMS is is a very large company. So... um, I work in the oncology side of things, so within cancer, which is a a major focus, but as you mentioned, we have areas of interest in inflammation, cardiovascular, um, although oncology is is one of our major areas. So we actually divide our company up into thematic research centers, so different sites have different themes. We call them TRECs, TRCs, Um, and so my thematic research center is the tumor microenvironment, which is based in Redwood City, California, thus the California location. Um, And we focus on um, the discovery biology. So that's everything from target identification, target validation, drug development, and then entry of those drugs into phase one clinical trials for assets that try to modulate the tumor microenvironment. And maybe just a step back, the tumor microenvironment, what is that? Um, So the tumor microenvironment or TME as we call it, um, is basically the complex structure of cells and supporting structures that make up the tumor and support its growth. So this includes things uh, like stromal cells, fibroblast cells, uh, as well as many different immune populations, which is really where where I work and my team works on, uh, and trying to understand how we can manipulate some of these populations, specifically in my line of work, myeloid cells, which is a type of immune cell, uh, that we can use to try to better activate our immune system against the tumor and ultimately develop therapeutics that allow us to treat patients with cancer. Let's backtrack a bit. Do you remember what initially drew you to science and specifically to biomedical research? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was always interested in science, um, even from a young age, sort of, you know, growing up in elementary school. Um, I think for me, I, my grandparents lived with us growing up um, and my grandfather was paraplegic. And so we had, um, doctors and nurses coming in and out of the house all the time. And sort of, I saw very early on this interaction with the medical community and 
drugs and pharmaceuticals. And, and I really had this sense of like, I want to be able to make a drug that helps people, that helps people like my grandfather. Um, you know, as a kid, I don't think I knew what that meant. Like first I was like, oh, I want to be a pharmacist, but realized that that was probably not actually the route I wanted to go. So that sort of steered me on the science path. And then, you know, through high school, definitely became um, really enamored with biology um, and going into undergrad, which is where I ended up majoring in microbiology, um, became sort of enamored with how viruses infect cells and how our immune system recognizes that and had two really great courses in um, immunology as well as microbiology and virology that sort of just was, that was it. I understood that was what excited me. That was the interesting stuff that I wanted to learn more about. Um, so that really solidified sort of the science path. So you're now about six years or so out of your PhD, but could you take us back to the time you were studying at UCSF? Um, whose lab were you in and what were you studying? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so I guess even going into UCSF, um, I still wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. And what I really liked about the program there was that it's a, an umbrella program. So you get to rotate through labs, not just in one department, like not just immunology, but across the board. Um, and so there was a lot of opportunity to sort of pick and choose rotations, what was going to be interesting. And I actually, I went there thinking I was going to do virology. And I had my first rotation lined up with this big hot shot in the viral field. And he ended up like weeks before joining, uh, leaving for industry actually. And so I had to scramble to change what my first rotation was going to be, um, which, you know, you know, I think in the long run worked out really perfectly. And I sort of did a smattering of different rotations. I still did a virology one. Um, and actually the, my last rotation was with Max Crummel, who ended up being my thesis advisor. Um, and it was sort of like off the wall, let's have a fun one. He was doing intravital imaging at the time. The you know, tumor immunology was just starting to take off. So it was still sort of a niche field. And you know, I didn't, I didn't think that was gonna be my first pick. Loved it, the, loved the lab environment, loved Max. He was an incredible mentor um, and loved the science. It was, it was cool, it was different. Um, and so ended up joining his lab and ended up doing um, a bunch of stuff on different myeloid populations, specifically this population of dendritic cells a rare subset of dendritic cells and their role in tumor immunity and antigen presentation and um, had, yeah, had a really fantastic time there and actually was also able to build a really great um, set of mentors that, you know, I'm still in contact back with at UCSF. So maybe to, uh, it's a little bit of a tangent here, but I just I had to ask. So your PI at the time, uh, Dr. Crummel, he was the co-inventor of um, apilimumab, which is actually now, <laughs> as it turns out, um, a, B a BMS drug and the first uh, checkpoint inhibitor. Did he ever talk about what that um, experience was like for him? Yeah, and it was it was certainly an inspiring aspect. It's funny how full circle <laughs> it becomes. Um, yeah, I mean, we got lots of um, stories of his days in Jim Allison's lab as a grad student, which is where he was at Berkeley um, during the discovery. Um, and, you know, he still maintains quite good contact with BMS. We collaborate with him actively. Um, it, and it was definitely inspiring. I think that probably was one of the things that helped ignite that interest in the sort of industry switch versus academic switch in my career was that he was an example, although he chose 
for the most part to stay in academia, though he also has a company, um, that showed sort of how basic research can really impact drug development, how understanding sort of the biology behind certain things, in that case, you know, this T-cell checkpoint molecule that they were studying in mice, and how you can see that over the course of, you know, a decade, 15 years, to actually develop a drug that goes into patients and impacts patient survival and is still the sort of leading um, marker of why IO is exciting and why it's working and what gives us hope that we can continue to work in that field. Um, so that, yeah, that was awesome. Um, and just to know him personally and then to be working in the field now has, it's been great. Um, and, you know, I, I hope we're all as lucky to be able to have the work that we do in our PhD be able to translate into the clinic. It doesn't always work out so easily, but it's nice to see the examples that do. Yeah. So as I understand, uh, your your PhD research actually led to um, a patent filing, right? And then you joined your PI um, in founding uh, Pioneer Therapeutics in 2015. Um, for some of the scientists in the audience who might be listening, who are working on translational research, what informed your decision to file a patent on your work? Yeah, it was um, a little bit of knowing that we had found something a bit unique. You know, it's, it did sort of happen organically in that, you know, we had we published on this mechanism of different populations of myeloid cells in the tumor environment. And we had some hypotheses around how we thought we could modulate them, which obviously leads you to think, you know, how could we target them? What would be the therapeutic path to do that? And we had generated a pretty nice data set that I think really profiled a lot of these populations in a way that hadn't been done at the time. Now it's, everyone's doing it, but, um, and so for us, it just seemed obvious to, to, and I think this also came from Max's experience in the space of having worked on a novel pathway, patenting the findings, and then having that sort of come back in the end as a, as a drug came out of it. So there was a normal progression in that sense. Um, it was really exciting for me at the time, you know, to be involved in a patent and um, a great learning experience. Um, but it really was also then the foundation for um, the startup which became Pioneer Therapeutics. Um, and that was actually a really great opportunity for me too, to coming out of my PhD, you know, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I, you know, clearly I was in the sort of dendritic cell myeloid biology space. I was very set on immuno-oncology, but did I want to do an academic postdoc? Did I want to stay in the sort of traditional route? Did I want to go startup? Did I want to go big pharma? There's lots of options coming out of your PhD. So the, this going directly and with my mentor who, you know, I, has been fantastic throughout my career in supporting me, um, seemed like a great opportunity to sort of take a shot at the startup space, understand what it meant to take something from sort of basic research and see if we can translate it, see if we can make something that has an impact. Um, so it, it was a little terrifying at the time, to be honest, um, just because it was such a different world from sort of the academic lab space. Um, and, you know, I was essentially employee number one. There was one other person. So we had to set up the lab. I had to wear hats that I had never worn before. You know, um, I was in charge of our finances, which was not something that I had ever done before. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, steep learning curves involved in that. Um, 
but it was, it was also really, really cool and get, getting to do it with somebody um, who I trusted and, and had learned so much from was a fantastic opportunity. And I think that really solidified like, okay, this is what I want to do. Drug development in the IO space. This is it. Um, so yeah. How did you, I'm curious about this. How did you recruit other people to join a startup? Right. <laughs> well, we had a whole lab really of people. <laughs> Um, we did actually recruit quite a few people from our own lab. So from, um, as they were finishing their postdocs or some other PhD students who were finishing up, um, we were able to pull them in and that was sort of a really easy talent pool to pull from. I mean, we also had a pretty great network at UCSF to rely on other students, other postdocs outside of our lab that were interested. And then, I mean, um, you're probably aware, I mean, there's now these hubs everywhere. So San Francisco, we have, there's just an immense network of talented scientists here. We have so many startups, so many companies. It is a really rich network of people. And I mean, even now at BMS, we're, we're always trying to pull from that talent pool. Um, so it really wasn't hard. We, you, we could post a job um, and, and bring in people. And we were able to grow pretty quickly, which was also cool. That was maybe another steep learning curve. You know, in your PhD, you maybe take on some younger students or research associates that you mentor, but you never really manage somebody in sort of the same way that you would do in a company. So that was a learning experience for sure there as well, taking on my first report um, and <laughs> the responsibility that came along with that. Um, but yeah, it, it actually was pretty easy. And I think because we were really excited about what we were doing and passionate about the science, um, that becomes contagious too. It's easy to, to bring people along with you on that journey. Yeah, so I'm wondering because um, it seems like uh, that transition going from PhD to then uh, working at this company and uh, then leading a team, you kind of go from being an um, an individual contributor to now managing scientists. Were there any sort of uh, learnings that really stuck out to you, maybe that you weren't expecting um, in transitioning from being um, kind of the the hands that are doing all the experiments and now managing other scientists. Totally. Yeah, totally. That was probably the biggest learning curve for me and has continued while I've, you know, grown up BMS as well is, you know, I was trained to do science. That was what I felt good at doing. That's what I felt competent in. I trusted myself to do that. And I understood how I needed to organize my time and my thoughts and my experiments and my data. Um, and that's what you do, right? In your PhD, that's, that's, that's the skill set you're really building. So to then take on these new responsibilities of managing other people's time and other people's data and how they organize their experiments um, definitely was a learning curve. And it's not something that we're formally trained for coming out of a PhD, you know, even coming out of a postdoc. Um, and so there, luckily, I think BMS has done a fantastic job of offering lots of management management training courses, opportunities to sort of flex that skill a bit, which is hugely helpful, right? Because without that, it's just you, you, the, the social interactions from, from many uh, bench scientists aren't always capable of dealing with certain situations that managers have to deal with. So there was definitely a learning curve, but I was thankful to have sort of the resources from BMS that taught me some of those skills. Um, and, and it is, yeah, it is probably one of the main differences from coming out of sort of the more academic lab setting into a larger uh, pharma. Everything is very team driven, super collaborative. So there's, you're working with lots of lots of different people across multifunctional, cross-functional teams. So being able to navigate that also is another important skill set. 
Yeah, so actually going off of that, um, it probably drawing from both the Pioneer experience and your current uh, experience at BMS, uh, one thing that I noticed with, um, at least with scientists, is that um, there are introverts and extroverts, um, and they sort of interact with each other very differently. Um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily predict how effective or good of a scientist they are. For instance, there could be an introvert who kind of doesn't say much, but they, you know that when you're on in a one-on-one interaction, um, they're just amazing. Um, and you have to sort of unlock the value. How do you do that in managing the different personalities that exist in a team? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's so true. There's so many different types of people and working styles and and places where certain people excel and don't excel. And I think it's finding um, their strengths and being able to leverage them for sure. I mean, a lot of it for us also comes to the science, the data, right? That speaks for itself for the most part. And as long as you're capable of communicating that to some degree, you know, some people are better than others. It's sort of the public version of displaying their data. But it is such an important part of our career is being able to communicate what your findings are, what you're working on, what you're doing, um, that I, I think that still is key. And so as long as the data quality is there and the interpretation is there, that really stands for itself. Then it's sort of from a manager perspective, you know, you identify opportunities that allow for somebody who's more of an extrovert to go and present in front of a bunch of other people, whereas you identify opportunities for somebody with a slightly different personality style to work in a smaller group, but that will still get exposure and recognition. So it's it's just sort of finding places where you know that they will be able to excel and show their skills. Um, but I mean, I think end of the day, still it comes to, you know, how can you communicate your science and your data? That's still key. I think everyone in the pandemic is getting a crash course, hopefully on communicate their science a little bit better. I know. Personally, I've had a lot of people asking me like, about virology and I, I work on the brain. <laughs> it's not my area. So it's definitely illuminating some gaps in the way that I think academic scientists and also industry scientists know to communicate for whichever audience they're presenting to. Yeah, absolutely. It's been such a such a central topic that we've all been focused on. But yeah, I, I think bringing it back to the data too. And I mean, yeah, I think we've all too been impacted by the pandemic as well. And having to do things virtually too has changed how we have to do interactions and changed how we've had to do science. Certainly, we had a full lab shutdown to begin with and have now sort of brought different people back into the lab, but still many people are remote and navigating sort of like you lose all of the hallway talk, you lose all of the, you know, water talk that happens just in the hallway. And that's, those are important too. So figuring out how to convert that into the virtual space during a pandemic has also been quite fun. So you joined, getting back to BMS, you joined in 2016. Um, and now you're working, as you said, to further their immuno-oncology or IO efforts. So what made you move, make the move to BMS specifically? Yeah. So as I mentioned, so my time at Pi was awesome and a huge learning experience. Pioneer, sorry, short for Pi. Um, it, it was also really hard, really, really hard. Um, and I, I think what I loved about it was what we were doing, the science. What I realized very quickly was that I had no idea what the hell I was doing in terms of drug development and no one else did either, which is, 
which is fine <laughs> to some degree. Um, you know, they soon expanded and grew and brought the people on that had great drug development experience. But I was keenly aware that the skill set that I needed, I needed to develop at a place that knew how to develop drugs. And I had put immuno-oncology agents into patients before and knew what that process looked like. And so BMS, which is like a powerhouse in that regard, um, was an easy option to say, okay, I need to learn the drug development process. Here's a great place I can do it. Um, and I, there were some people that I knew that worked at BMS too that helped sort of explain what the culture was like um, and, and what kind of opportunities were there. So for me, it was really the opportunity to be able to really understand from a company that had succeeded in that space, what it meant to develop a drug. Like, what does that actually mean? What are the, the processes that happen not just around the science of validating a target, but then what do you need to build actually to get something to a patient? And that's what I saw BMS as an opportunity for. And that was really the rationale um, to move. Uh, and it, it has been that, which has been fantastic to sort of get the, it's definitely, you know, they're very different experiences. A startup on one end, BMS on the other end. So Biopharma, it's a huge company. There's pluses and minuses to both, which I think for anyone coming out of their PhD too is important to sort of recognize and think about what they're looking for. But from a development process and learning process and skill set building process, BMS has been fantastic and sort of building that for me and showing me how that can be done. At your time at BMS, you sort of moved between moved between multiple positions. So you start as a research investigator, moved up and up and up now as a principal scientist. Can you explain what that process was like um, in the industry, that process of promotion and what responsibilities are sort of associated with each of those levels? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the sort of specific titles change from company to company. But yeah, so I entered... Um, very much, I was sort of 70 to 80% in the lab, generating data, working on early targets. Um, and I really took the approach when I joined of uh, doing what I knew how to do, which was science. <laughs> um, you know, take a question, build a hypothesis, design experiments, and, and test it. And I really put my head down and just um, did a lot, which was really great. So I was able to sort of take on a bunch of different projects, some of which totally failed, some of which totally excelled as, as goes with science. Um, and I think I was able to just really focus on the wet lab work, focus on the data generation, while at the time also sort of getting used to the more corporate world, the, the culture at BMS, what it meant to be part of a, an actual official company, which you know there, I think there was some learning curve there. Um, so, you know, joining the responsibility was really, and at that level is sort of leading a project, as we call it. So you take a target, um, something that you uh, want to modulate therapeutically, and depending at what stage it's at, maybe it's something that you've read in the literature and you're excited about validating the hypothesis around it. You have to design basically a work plan on how you can validate that, and then how would you actually therapeutically target that? And then you work with uh, collaborative teams that then help you create the tools to be able to, you know, do you want to generate an antibody to target it? Do you want to generate a small molecule to target it? What's, how are you 
going to try to modulate this and then show that you can. So that was really sort of the initial responsibilities and, and what I focused my time on. So taking a target, validating it, building a, a sort of discovery work plan on how you could therapeutically modulate it and then making decisions on it. So that was really key because I think the difference from sort of academic science where it's very mechanistic driven, you spend years on a single pathway or a subtype of cell and it, there's always more questions, right? And the, the mind or the frame shifting for how we have to tackle science in industry for drug development is you have to do it quickly and you have to be able to make decisions informed decisions, and sometimes you don't have all of the data to make those decisions, but informed decisions that allow you to assess quickly, is this viable? Is this not viable? What do I, what data do I need to make that decision? Because in the end, this is, you know, potentially a therapeutic. It's potentially going to impact somebody's life. So you can't spend five years on the mechanism to try to understand sort of the discrete pathway that you're modulating. Um, so I think that that took a little bit of time, but I think initially that's where I started. Um, and then you start to bring on more responsibilities. So leading multiple projects instead of just one project, showing that you can make decisions on those um, in a data-driven fashion, showing that you can collaborate across multiple different teams, start to show that you have influence outside of just you and maybe your one report. Um, so that was sort of the progression for me. Um, and then sort of, you know, my team began to grow. I started to manage more people, show that those individuals could then individually take on projects and drive decisions um, and sort of the impact collectively the, that we could have on our portfolio, which is sort of the end of the day, what we're working on, what targets we're pushing. Um, that was sort of the progression and the acceleration of responsibility. Yeah. And I'm curious, you already alluded to some of the differences in academia world and, you know, working for a large company and such as the timeline, the management, but you mentioned there's, there was also an adjustment period to the corporate culture. Can you talk a little bit more about what that's like? Because I'm sure it's something that, you know, for me too, personally thinking about going into a next career stage, I, I, I wouldn't want to, I'm nervous about asking that in an interview or something, right? <laughs> Yeah, and you shouldn't be nervous about asking that. But um, yeah, I guess the it's it's definitely um, the for me it was adjusting to sort of the how things are done. So there's lots of meetings, <laughs> many many meetings. Part of that is a function of we have so many different groups, which is fantastic. So we have designated teams that do individual things where it is sort of in, in the academic space, it's you. You gotta create re your reagents, validate your reagents. You do it start to finish, you do all the animal work, you do everything. We have entire functions that are dedicated for those. So we have an in vivo pharmacology group, we have a biotherapeutics group, we have a cell engineering group. Um, and, and they independently can take on those sort of generation of reagents. And, and it's how you can coordinate with all of them to ultimately get what you need to do your experiment to make a decision. So I think that was a little bit of a learning curve, just taking what I had done individually and then figuring out how to work with my peers and engage and motivate others to get work done collectively and understanding that, you know, everyone has a hundred things on their list that they're trying to do at the same time. So then being able to manage that. Um, 
But I think, you know, it's easy. And anytime you take on a new position, role, job, whatever, there is that sort of just adjustment to how things are done. What's the the culture like? How do, how do people um, accomplish things and reward things? Um, so just learning that a little bit was the adjustment. But, it you know, you pick it up pretty quickly. I think it might be interesting to uh, dive into um, the therapeutic area and the space that you work in. Um, I think it's actually fairly new um, in terms of uh, sort of paradigms for treating cancer. Um, in the 70s, it was just using chemotherapeutics that sort of stopped any sort of dividing cell in its tracks, uh, you know, off-target toxicity is not very good. And then there's the next wave that was sort of enabled by genomics of being more targeted, right? Targeting specific mutations and defects. Um, and now more recently in this third wave, which is one that you're actively working on, which is actually the idea that changing the uh, tumor microenvironment, so not even necessarily the tumor cells themselves, but changing the microenvironment, the other cells that are around it can actually inhibit uh, tumor growth. So my question to you is, um, because it's my understanding from, you know, scientists that were talking about this that are uh, much more senior that um, people were skeptical of, you know, immunotherapies until the first checkpoint inhibitors started actually showing some efficacy. And I would imagine that at least some of that transition, the thinking that IO doesn't work to IO is amazing and we have to IO everything happened <laughs> during those formative PhD years for you. Was that true? Totally. Yeah. I, I The timing couldn't have been better, honestly. <laughs> Um, it, 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 it started to take off really, um, towards the end of my PhD, um, which was when we were getting sort of some of the early response data out of some of the early IPI CTLA-4, uh, checkpoint blockade trials. And then later from Opdivo, as you mentioned, which targets PD-1, um, yeah, you know, and I think there, it, it's, it's a little bit of, um, it swings both ways. So there was a lot of doubters to begin with. Um, and I think it really took that initial clinical data to show a signal to show that, you know, hey, there are people that are responding. Granted, it's only 25 to 30% of certain populations, but they're responding and they're durable responses. So that was a very, you know, critical piece of data for the field. I think just as you said, it, then the, the reaction was, okay, now I owe everything. This is the answer. This will be the solution for everything. And there was a huge effort across the board in academia and in industry to make that push. And I think people dove in head first, which is fantastic, but I think there was a little um, over expectation on what it would yield. And really, I think what we're working on now is understanding why it's still, why we still haven't done better. So, you know, I mentioned for some of the T-cell checkpoint blockades, Opdivo, CTLA-4, some of these specific pathways on, on checkpoint inhibitors, we get some responses. And there's this patient population that responds really nicely. And, you know, certain indications, certain tumor types seem to respond better than others. The question is now for the patients that don't respond, which is the majority of the population, to be honest, in most indications, why is that? 
And, and is it because of these microenvironment factors, these other cells that are actually preventing the T cell checkpoint blockades to do their job? And so that's really some of the strategy behind sort of modulating the tumor microenvironment. So can we identify the patient populations that are limited by some of these suppressive microenvironment factors, alleviate them, and now add on IO that should sort of unlock this IO responsiveness? That's sort of the holy grail, but it's, it's really the rationale behind what we're trying to do at BMS. Um, and I think it comes back to, too, is, you know, really understanding from the patient perspective, right? Every tumor is different. Every tumor type is different. This isn't a blunt force approach. We really need to understand, you know, what's the microenvironment in lung? What's the microenvironment in pancreatic tumors? How are they different? How are they different after standard of care therapies? What do they look like after chemo, after radiation? And then how can we modulate them, you know, based on what mechanisms we think are at play within the microenvironment to then layer on the checkpoint blockades. So I think that's currently where the field is at. And you know, it's, it's certainly been a ride to see the early days to some of the failures, honestly, in the clinic to where we are now, where we're starting to, I think, understand that it's more complicated, not surprisingly. <laughs> that's how most science goes. It, it takes decades for us to really to understand some of these mechanisms and to be able to target them properly. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think the next 10 years, the next 20 years are going to be instrumental and, and hopefully transformative in, in the therapies that we're able to push. So one of the common problems that you hear specifically for women or female identifying people in academia is this concept of attrition. Um, and so disproportionate attrition as you move higher and higher up the, up the ladder. Um, so you'll start off with about the same number of PhDs being, or sorry, the same number of bachelor's degrees being awarded to men and women. And then it slowly and slowly, slowly decreases as you go further up the ivory tower. And so I'm wondering, it, this is true also for the corporate world and biotech. And I'm just totally. wondering if... Yeah, if you had experienced that yourself with watching people around you, or if you'd experienced that, you know, throughout your career track. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, both in academia, when I was at UCSF, you know, the majority of professors were male. That's, that's certainly changing. And it's not, you know, there are exceptions to that. Um, but it, there is this sense of attrition for many, many reasons. And as you mentioned, you know, it's not unique to academia. It, it's also in industry for sure. Um, one of the things that BMS has done that I think is fantastic. Um, so we have um, basically a, a network of women. It's called Be Now, Bristol-Myers Network of Women. That's really a, a, a group of women that across the sort of sciences, through translational, through clinical, all, all parts of the company are involved, that is really just a place for people to support each other, to hear stories, and also highlight examples of success. So, you know, I think we've done a really good job specifically at our site too. This Our site head is a woman. We have several prominent uh, women leaders, which hasn't always been the case. That's, that's been more of a, a recent thing, which I'm, I'm totally enthused about. Um, and it just helps to see examples, right? To know that it's achievable, that, you know, that could be me, she's doing it. There's some, you know, that, that looks like an example of something I can achieve. 
Um, and if those examples don't exist, it's a lot harder to imagine it for yourself. Um, so I think BMS has done a great job of, you know, trying to address that problem, not just for women, but for sort of across the board. Um, and also offer a lot of opportunities for support systems, for extra conferences, for trainings, um, which I think are also really helpful. Do you think that's becoming a more, you know, common, because I, I, you don't hear necessarily a lot about that in academia, you hear, you know, sort of a patchwork kind mm -hmm. of network approach, um, you know, maybe between graduate students or faculty. And I know at Hopkins, we have, you know, a couple associations for women in STEM that promote, you know, a broad inclusion and access. But do you think in like the corporate culture and in industry culture, this is becoming more common to have these networks that are established and promoted by the companies themselves? I think so. I think so. I think it's absolutely recognized that, you know, supporting women, supporting diversity in our workforce is critical to our success, right? It's, we have to be able to include everyone and the different points of views and the different perspectives are key in, you know, in how we develop a drug and how we are able to push it. And, and it's those different perspectives that, you know, can tackle a scientific question from a different angle that are exactly what we need. So I think from sort of a business productivity perspective, it's, it's recognized and because that ends up being so important for many companies. <laughs> as it should be, in addition to sort of what we can deliver therapeutically, that it has to be solved for at sort of some of the earliest levels. Yeah, uh, no, that's a great point too, because if, if you don't bring more people to the table at the early stage, you're not gonna have as many people at the end. And yeah, so it's something I hope more universities too are paying attention to, I think they are, but it's good to hear that it's, you know, in your position where you're much higher up too, you are seeing a broader shift and more inclusive workspace. Yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been really, um, I guess, proud of, of what we've done. So our site head is a woman. There's another thematic research center within our, the oncology department that's also a woman um, that actually there's three that are led by women, which is, you know, phenomenal. I think that's, that's great. Cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing your perspectives with us today. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chikermain. And I'm Jenna Glasser. Thank you for listening.